So, my wife Lori and I, we have three children. They're 11, 8, and almost 5, I'll say. Uh, they think that we should get a dog. Yeah, all right. Well, here's the deal about the dog. I like dogs. My wife likes dogs. In fact, many times my wife is on the side of the children and I'm left on an island here. I would call the voice of reason, right? All I would say is, my question is, I, I enjoy having a, I grew up with a dog. I like dogs. But things are so busy that I honestly wonder if we have the time to add this to our schedule and could we actually care for it the way that the dog deserves to be cared for? That's my big question. So when we have these conversations, you know how this goes, uh, just the way it would be portrayed in movies or on TV or in a book, my children come to me and they make all sorts of promises. If you will get us the dog, we promise. We promise that we will feed it. We promise that we will bathe it. We promise my four-year-old will come and say, I promise I will walk it around the neighborhood. We pro promise we'll take it to the vet. Whatever needs to be done with this animal, we promise you that we are going to do it. Now, there may come a time, don't let this leave this room, please, all right? There may come a time that, that we end up having a, a dog at our house, all right? Please don't run to my children after the, the service and be like, we heard you're getting a dog, all right? Because that, that won't go well. But there may come a time that we get, well, here's the thing I know. I know already that if we enter into this agreement with our children and get a dog, there is no possible way that they are going to live up to their end of the bargain. One, because they, they just can't, right? And two, because it, there's, there's parts of it that it would actually be unwise for me to let my four-year-old walk the dog through the neighborhood on her own or let my children take the dog to the vet on their own. That just wouldn't be smart parenting. But at the end of the day, there's, there's a piece where they don't have the ability to hold up to their end of the bargain. They're going to forget to feed the dog. They're going to they're gonna rather watch some sort of screen than bathe the dog or something. Something will happen where they can't live up. So if we enter into this agreement, one of the things that we have to prepare ourselves for is how will we respond when they don't live up to their end of the bargain? I wonder in your life how you respond when people don't live up to their end of the bargain. I mean the little things, like someone says, I'll meet you for coffee, and they, they forget, or they're 15 minutes late. Like, those are the little... But there's the bigger things in life, where people promise things to you, people say that they will do things, people say that they'll be there for you, and those agreements fall through. They don't live up to their end of the deal. How do you end up responding? How do you find yourself responding in those moments? What I want to talk about today is how God responds in those moments and what that means for how we respond in those moments. We always take Memorial Day weekend and we talk about the idea of compassion and what we as a church are engaged in when it comes to the work of compassion. 
It just so happens over the last couple of months that we've been in this sermon series where we've been walking through the entire story of Scripture. And today we want to take a moment and pause and say, well, what about this idea of compassion in Scripture? We said that the solution to a broken world, we've said this in this series, if you haven't been with us, we've said, we, we all recognize that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We feel that, we see it, we experience it. And we said the solution to that broken world is a covenant God, meaning a God that enters into to promises bound by law and love with his people, and he does that over time. And we've looked at how he's done that with people like Abraham and Moses and David, and how he does it with us through Jesus Christ. Covenant's not a word we're familiar with, but maybe you've, you're familiar with the covenant of marriage, and that's a, a good picture. In fact, that's a picture that God uses throughout Scripture to describe his relationship with his people is that picture of marriage. That there is law and love, vow combined. But here's the thing when God enters into a covenant with you and me. And he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. He knows that there will be a time that you and I don't live up to our end of the bargain. We can't. We simply can't. God comes to us and says, be holy like I am holy. And we say, we will. He says, follow me and have no other gods. Give your worship to nothing else than me. And we say, we will. And God knows when we come in and we make that covenant with him that because of our sinful nature, because of, of weakness, because of temptation and our, our inability to be perfect as God is perfect, that there will come a time where God will always keep his end of the bargain, but we will at some point not keep ours. And the question is, how does God respond in those moments and what does that mean for us? I want to focus in in our time together this morning on one of these covenants, and perhaps it's the most familiar one, although I'm certainly the covenant that, that the new covenant in Christ's blood, we talk about that every time we celebrate communion uh, and, and take that together, that's very familiar. But I think probably, <laughs> thankfully, uh, we could thank Hollywood for part of this. Uh, one of the more familiar covenants that gets made in scripture is the covenant that God makes with Moses and the Israelites uh, in the wilderness. And I want to take a moment and just hone on that one today. I don't know if a covenant has ever been broken faster than how fast the people of God break this covenant. God comes to Moses and he says, I've led you out of Egypt. Do you remember this story? The Israelites enslaved in Egypt for generations. God uses Moses and his brother Aaron. He leads the people out of Egypt, parts the Red Sea. They all go across, right? And so now they're at this moment. They're at Mount Sinai. And, and God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Moses, and my people. And he says this to the people in Exodus 19. He says, he says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you'll do this, you'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, God speaking to Moses, you shall speak to the people of Israel. And God makes this promise. If you keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession. But here's the problem. None of us 
keep our covenants with God. We just can't do it. And these people couldn't do it either. If you don't know the, the story, what happens is, is Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law from the Lord. And he's up there longer than the people anticipate. And so they can see from the base of the mountain that there is activity on the top of the mountain. They can see storms and clouds and lightning. And Moses is not coming down. So they get a little restless. And they go to Aaron, who's been left in charge. Moses' brother Aaron, who's been left in charge. While Moses is up in the mountain receiving the commandments from the Lord and the law from the Lord. And you're probably very familiar, many of us are familiar with the fact that there's two stone tablets that God creates, that he writes on, that he gives to Moses in that moment. But you may not know that there are many more laws that, that when Moses is up on top of the mountain, God gives to Moses. In fact, there's chapter after chapter in the book of Exodus of all of these laws. So Moses is up there for a while receiving all of these laws. And the people go to Aaron and they say, we don't know what's happened to Moses up there, but we don't think he's coming back. And so we need, we need a new God to worship and follow. I mean, just before he went up the, the mountain, Moses said to the people, if you will keep the covenant, God says you will be his treasured possession. And already Moses is just away for a little bit longer than they thought he would be. And they're like, that's it. We need a new one. We need a new God. I mean, the ink is not even dry on the wedding certificate, the, the marriage license. And the, it's in the mail on the way to town hall. And the people are like, ah, we're done with that. And so they go to Aaron and Aaron says, all right, he thinks it's a good plan too. He's worried about the people. So he says, give me all the gold. And he melts down the gold and he makes a golden calf. And the, there starts to be this noise on the top of the mountain. And it's the sound of the people worshiping this idol that they've created. Moses comes down from the mountain and his anger burns hot towards the people, the text says. In fact, you may remember he takes those tablets that God has created and he breaks them in his anger at the people that have broken and violated the covenant so quickly. After that happens, God says to Moses, come up the mountain again. Now, if you've stuck with me so far in this story, here's what I want you to hear. Something very significant happens when Moses comes up to that mountain a second time. God recreates the tablets. He re-gives the law. But God does something that until this point in scripture, he has never done. God speaks to Moses and describes his character to Moses. Moses, you want to know who I am? This is who I am. And he does it in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, 7, and 8. So the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. When God begins to speak uh, to Moses, the very first word he uses is a word that in, that in this version of scripture that we have in the seats in front of you and that I'm reading from, it's translated merciful. But there's another way that this word is translated. And if you're reading the NIV or something like that right now, you're seeing a different word. You're seeing the word compassionate. That the Lord, God is describing himself. And the first word that he says after his people have deserted him and they've made this golden calf, this idol that they're worshiping, God says, keep my covenant. And they say, all right, they receive the word from Moses. Moses goes up the mountain. They break the covenant almost immediately. Moses comes back and God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to know who I am in this moment. I am merciful. I am compassionate. I wonder if that's your default or my default. When we have these agreements, people break them. Feel like people aren't keeping up their end of the bargain with us. To know that when we do not keep up our end of a covenant with God, God's character is one of compassion and mercy. What I want you to know today from this passage is that when you break God's covenant, God offers you compassion. He offers you mercy. And when we look at God's compassion in the Old Testament, I think that there's three truths that come about. Now I have to say before I get into these, all right, I have to cite my work for just a second. Because we were looking at this Exodus chapter 34 and thinking about this passage when it came to this Sunday of talking about compassion. And not really knowing that we were talking about this idea, Lai Fong Lee, who's the head of our compassion ministry here at Mount Hope, which we'll talk more of in a, in a minute, Lai Fong who's sitting in the back there, she forwarded us a podcast and said, I've just been listening to this podcast from the Bible Project on Exodus 34 and God's compassion, and I found it really helpful. So I listened to the podcast, and it was so helpful that basically this entire next section of my sermon, I don't know how to cite this, but we have some professors, some scholars in the room, maybe you could help me cite this. But through this whole next period, these three truths about God's compassion in the Old Testament, you need to be reading, adapted from the Bible Project podcast, August 21st, 2020, as forwarded via email by Lai Fong Lee, okay? <laughs> I don't know exactly how to cite that, but that's, that's what's happening here. I thought it was really, really helpful. Three truths about God's compassion, especially because when when I think about, if you've been in church for a while, when you think about God in the Old Testament, we think about God's justice. And absolutely, that's a piece of who God is. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we can overlook God's compassion towards his people when they violate and break his covenant. I'd actually, for the, for the next thing, as I talk through these things, I'm actually wondering if I could get a volunteer to join me on stage. Now, I know this is a very specific ask because a number of you right now are saying to yourselves, I, if he calls on me, I'm gonna lose it. He better, I'm not gonna call on you, but is there anyone that would be willing just to join me on stage? All right, Jonathan, come on up. Come on up, a big hand for Jonathan. Look at that risk he's taking. 
How you doing, man? Good. Good to see you. All right. Now, you don't have to necessarily say anything, all right? You just get to play a part. If you want to say something, you can. But, but you just get to play a part, all right? So this is going to be, uh, I'm giving you a, the important part here, all right? You are going to be representing the person of God, okay? All right. I'll give you, I'll give you a chance to get in character here. Yeah, there you go. You get in character. All right. I say that, excellent, excellent. I like that you're owning it. So I say this because this is the picture that, that scripture gives us. That when God and his people are in covenant, when we're bound together by law and love, and I choose to break that covenant, which is inevitable, God's never going to break the covenant. But I am. Scripture over and over says, uses the language you stay right there, <laughs> that I am turning my back towards God, that I am turning away from God. And the question is, <laughs> no, the opposite of that. What does God do? What does God, there you go. What does God do uh, when, I, when I turn my back? Because God's, God's character doesn't change. It doesn't change even when I do this. It stays the same. So the question is, what is that character? I appreciate it. And here's the first part of this. Stay here real quick. Here's the first part of this. God's compassion throughout the Old Testament and in Scripture is like the love of a parent to a child. And there's a couple of ways we see this. One is that the Hebrew word that's used here for compassion and mercy, and there's a couple different Hebrew words that are used throughout the Old Testament text, this is rakum, and I know my Hebrew pronunciation is weak, but just stick with me. Uh, rakum, which is, which is translated compassion and mercy, its root, the root of this word, is from the Hebrew word rahem, and that word means womb. There is a, uh, there is a real sense in which God is saying, the love and mercy and compassion that I have for you, even when you turn away from me, is like that of a, of a mother to a child. It comes from this deep, deep place within me. It's not just an emotion that changes from one time to the next. It's not like we're, I, I have mercy and compassion here, but I don't have mercy and compassion here. My compassion and mercy for you comes from a very deep place. It is emotional yet, yes, but it is consistent. And you see that throughout the Old Testament when the same word gets used in passages like this in Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child, God says, that she would have no compassion, rachum, on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, God says. And he also describes himself as a father with compassion. In Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, show the Lord, so the Lord shows rachum to those who fear him. God's compassion, God's compassion, even when we break the covenant, it's like a parent to a child. But there's another thing that we see in scripture. That God's compassion consistently puts God in a vulnerable position. Now, here's the thing that I think with stops us from showing the kind of compassion that God shows to us. 
when you're the one that shows compassion after someone else has wronged you, you put yourself in a very vulnerable position. When you show compassion after someone has walked away from you, you put yourself in a very vulnerable position. And God over and over again throughout the Old Testament puts himself in a vulnerable position. You could look at something like the book of Judges. The book of Judges is one cycle after another cycle where the people of God turn their backs to God in the covenant. And then they cry out. And the text says that God has compassion and mercy on them. And they turn back around and they restore the covenant. Until, of course, the next generation. In the book of Judges, the next generation turns their back on God. They cry out. God has mercy and compassion. And they restore the covenant. But this puts God in a very vulnerable position. God's the one who's getting taken advantage of here. But yet we see over and over in the Old Testament that God willingly puts himself in this position for his people. That despite the fact that the people are going to walk away in sin, God will have compassion on them. And here's the third thing that we see about God's compassion in the Old Testament. At least three things. God's compassion is a perfect balance of forgiveness and justice. God's compassion is a perfect balance of forgiveness and justice. God says this, or the, uh, the, maybe you remember the story about David, King David, David that fought da uh, David and Goliath. There was a time where David's army was out at war. And while his army is out at war, David, the king, he ends up seeing the wife of one of his soldiers. And he ends up sleeping with her while the soldier is out at war. Her name's Bathsheba. Her husband is Uriah. And in fact, in that situation, I mean, it would be reasonable to say that David the king, Bathsheba really didn't have a lot of choice in this situation. And so David does something terrible. And then to cover it up, after he finds out that Bathsheba is with child, is pregnant, he ends up murdering her husband. When David is confronted by the prophet, he writes Psalm 51, in which he comes and asks God for forgiveness. I mean, you want to talk about breaking the covenant. I don't know what the highest grade of breaking the covenant is. In fact, scripture tells us that all sin is equal. But I mean, that is, that is something. And yet David knows when he comes to God in Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, according to your same, Greek, same Hebrew word, rachum, Blot out my transgressions. David knows that no matter how much he turns his back to God and begins walking in his own direction, anytime he turns and asks for forgiveness, God's rachum, his compassion and mercy, means that he will find forgiveness from God. <laughs> thank you thank you oh excellent
Can you thank Jonathan? Thank you, Jonathan, for doing that. I appreciate that, man. That's right. There's no doubt that God's in Celtic Green this morning. I, I would say that. Now, what I would say is that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that God doesn't enact justice. His compassion is a perfect blend of, of love and justice, mercy and compassion and justice. And he says it to Moses back in Exodus 34. He said, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's what we see with David. But, he says to Moses, I will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And the question is, how can God be both at the same time? How can he do both of these things? Be a, his character is compassion. His character is mercy. It's like, a, it's like a parent to a child. It comes from deep inside of him, this, uh, this emotion, this desire to be with his people. It's not just a, a flighty thing. It's a, it's a deep-seated, rooted emotion, that, uh, the love that God has for you. And yet when we turn our backs to the covenant, so often the most loving thing that God can do for us is to allow us to feel the weight of that decision. And God's justice requires that he allows us to feel the weight of that. But his mercy says every single time you turn around, there is forgiveness and compassion, and grace. We've said this over and over in this sermon series, that the Bible is 66 books, 1,189 chapters, and one story. And that the story of Scripture is God with us so that we can be with Him. God, over and over, out of His great mercy and compassion for us, is with us. Most clearly, he's with us in the person of Jesus Christ, who comes and establishes the new covenant with us, dies on the cross and takes our, play, our place, shows great compassion to you and to me, so that we might be with God. That no matter how many times we turn our back on the covenant, that every time we turn around, there is forgiveness and mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean we don't bear the consequences of our decisions to turn our back on the, on the, on the covenant. David certainly bore the consequences for the rest of his life for that decision that he made. And yet he found forgiveness and compassion in God. Now, that's a great theory. What in the world are you supposed to do with it? This idea that God is this type of God. What does that mean for you? What are you supposed to do? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the text is clear. Scripture is clear over and over again that out of the compassion that God shows to you, you are to show compassion to others. You can't get away from it in, in the text. Out of the compassion that God shows to you, you are to show compassion to others. Jesus makes this clear in his teaching. 
He talks about what to do in Matthew 18 when somebody wrongs you. And then Peter comes up to him and says, okay, I just want to know like the limit. The disciple Peter, he always has the good questions. Jesus says, if someone wrongs you, this is what you're supposed to do. And then Peter comes up to him afterwards and says, yeah, but, but how many times am I really supposed to do this, Jesus? Like, I know there's this process of restoration, but, but there's got to be a limit to how many times I'm supposed to do this. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And I love, I, you can just hear Peter's thoughts there. Peter's like, I'm going to pick a number that's crazy. Like, it's probably two or three. I'm going to go all the way to seven, just so Jesus is like, no, not seven, Peter. Do it like four times, maybe. All right? But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus comes back and says, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. And if I was to translate this into sort of like casual English, this is what Jesus says. Peter, not seven times, but like an infinity amount of times. That's what Jesus is saying there. Never stop offering that love and compassion and forgiveness that you have been shown. And he tells this parable. He says there was a king who was out collecting his debts. And the king brought to him a man who owed him 10,000 talents. Now a talent, it varies with how much money people think that a talent uh, was in today's money. But many scholars would say that a talent was about 20 years wages. So in Jesus' parable here, this is a crazy amount of money. The king brings before him a man who owes 10,000 talents, about 200,000 years wages, right, to the king. And the king says, pay up. And the man says, of course, I can't. And the king says, then that's it. You, your wife, your children will be sold into slavery until you can pay back the debt. And everything that you have will be sold and go towards the debt. And the man throws himself in front of the king and says, please have mercy on me. And then the text says, and out of pity, and here we have the Greek word that is very similar to the Hebrew word rachum, which finds its root in the word for womb. This is splanknon, the, Hebrew, the Greek word splanknon. And that finds its root, that's how you know they're similar, in the intestines or the guts of a person. That's what the root word is for this pity word. So it's the same picture from the depths of the person. The king has pity on him. And the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, maybe you know this, this story. This man that's been forgiven some hundreds of thousands of years, that tens of thousands of years worth of debt. He goes and he finds a man who owes him a hundred denarii, which is about a hundred days wages, a much less sum. And the man says, I can't pay. And the one who has just been shown great mercy shows no mercy and has the man thrown in prison. When the king hears about this, he calls the man to him and he says, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Should you not have done what I did to you? And what Jesus is saying to you and to me is God has forgiven you. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, God has forgiven you a debt that goes beyond anything you could ever imagine. 
the depths of my sin? The times that I have turned my back on the covenant and walked my own way, God has forgiven all of it. And the depths of that, the cost of that is something beyond what I could even imagine. In fact, he paid the price knowing that I couldn't pay it back by sending his son and having his son die on the cross and be rose again, that the price might be paid. And the depth of that payment that God has made on my behalf behalf, is something that I can't even fathom. And God says to this, the text, the parable says to the servant, and God says to you and to me, that compassion and that mercy that God has had from the, from the innards of who he is. You ought to show that to others. The Apostle Paul says it this way. Be kind to one another. Splunkanon. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's a significant difference between why Christians should go out and show compassion and why the rest of our world shows compassion. Showing compassion in our world is a, is, everyone agrees is a good thing to do. It's hard to go out and do a survey on the street and say, should we stop showing compassion? And people saying, yeah, we should probably stop that. Everyone agrees. It's a good thing to show mercy, a good thing to show compassion, but why do we do it? Some might do it to feel better about themselves. Some might do it to earn praise, either from other people or God. Companies might do it because it's good marketing. There's all sorts of reasons why people show compassion. It doesn't mean it's bad for them to show compassion. It just means the reason why they're doing it is different than what Scripture says the reason you and I should be doing it is. Most of the time, people show compassion with the idea that they might receive something. God says something very different to you and me. God has said, you've already received. Now go and give. You've already got it. All that compassion, all that mercy that I have shown you, God says, now go and give it to others. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we prepare to close this morning. I don't know about you, but when God says to me, give what you've received, go and give the mercy and compassion that you've received to other people, there are some people that that's really easy to do with. People that I know, people that I like, people that I give the benefit of the doubt to. Like, I know they're good people. I know they were trying. They, they, they failed in this area, but, but I, I know that they'll be all right. And then there's groups of people that it's really difficult for me to do this with. Groups that, if I'm honest with you, I get much more excited about God showing them justice than I do God showing them compassion. People that I get much more excited about God showing them justice than I do God showing them mercy and compassion. And yet the debt that they need to be forgiven for turning their back on the covenant with God is no greater than the debt that I've already been forgiven. 
and I'm challenged by how can I go and give what I have received? How can I show not only as they might be experiencing the justice of God to leave open that door of great love and mercy and compassion? Because even when my back is turned towards God and I'm walking the other direction, God's mercy and compassion never changes. Even while he's allowing me to experience his justice, his mercy and compassion for me never goes away. How do I maintain that for the people that are in this world that I see that have their backs turned on the covenant with God? How do we as a church do it? And so I just am asking you this morning to think about a couple of things. How are we going to do this corporately as a church? Show mercy, show compassion. Listen, I know it's in the DNA of our church. I know. A couple of months ago, Judone came to me and said, hey, I'm graduating from Brandeis. I'd love for my family to be able to come and spend a few weeks with me. And we brought it to you and you show great mercy and compassion. This room gave their family a place to stay while they've been here these few weeks. You provided resources so they could have things to eat and clothes for the two boys and go do some fun things, I hope, over the last few weeks. You did it. Compassion, the mercy overflowed from this group. But how do we do it outside of these walls? How do we keep that and continue to show it outside of these walls? That's why we have the Compassion Ministry at Mount Hope. That's why we have this ministry that Lifong is in the back, runs with her team, because we want to be a part of this. We want to be a part of showing the compassion that God has shown us to the world outside here. Our compassion ministry partners with local gospel-centered organizations who love people as Christ loves them. We do that both through financial support and we do it ideally. We'd like to do more of this by providing volunteers for the work. There's two partners we currently have. One is Amira, helps women who are trying to leave and escape the sex trade find hope. And then New Life Home up in Manchester, New Hampshire, working with single pregnant women and their children providing hope and transformation through Jesus Christ. Recently, Amira was before the the government in both Massachusetts and Maine, pleading on behalf of these women for protection, help, hope, ultimately providing hope through Jesus Christ. New Life Home recently spoke at Brooklyn Tabernacle And if you get the loop, our email will link to some of those stories so that you can hear some of the women and how their lives have been transformed through Jesus Christ in this work. But we want to do more of this. You'll notice if you give to Mount Hope that there's a spot for Compassion Ministries in the drop-down when you give. That's what this is for, just so you know. But my other question for you is what are you going to do as an individual? Who are the people that it is really hard for you to show the same compassion and mercy that God has shown you. And how 
Are you going to do that today? God, I thank you for the compassion and mercy you've shown us. Father, I thank you that even though we have walked away from you and turned our back on you, that God, you have not turned your back on us. That through Jesus Christ, you offer us forgiveness and mercy and compassion. Father, I pray that that same mercy and compassion that you have offered us, that you will help us by your spirit to offer to others as you've called us to. Lord, I pray for the person in this room that has not experienced your mercy and compassion. Father, as they come to you this morning asking you for forgiveness, I pray that they would experience that in a real and powerful way. For those of us whose hearts have been hardened, Lord, remind us of the mercy we've received. Soften our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name.